0: Here's your host, Sakar Cowley.
1: Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ma- Michael Brady. Uh, Michael Brady is with Madison Exchange. Uh, he is a veteran uh, lawyer and is just a seasoned investor who has done a ton of work within the uh, 1031 Exchange uh, area. Uh, Michael uh, is vice president uh, of Madison 1031 and national qualified intermediary for tax deferred exchanges, uh, you know, pursuant to IRS code 1031 Uh, as a certified exchange specialist and attorney. His uh, responsibilities include consulting with clients and their advisors to provide guidance on uh, regulations affecting the 1031 exchanges, as well as overseeing the Madison 1031 exchanges, uh, national sales and marketing efforts. Uh, he regularly gives seminars which have received rave reviews, which are absolutely entertaining and informative. And I have seen some replays of those as well. And uh, he is also a uh, advisor to uh, law and accounting firms as well as some brokerage companies nationwide so and um, michael of course has published a lot of articles on tax and legal issues and absolutely an authority on the 1031 exchange and a very uh, reputed uh, author on his blog as well so unbelievable uh, resume michael uh, you bring in a lot of experience uh, give us uh, in your own words uh, a quick review uh, and a background of how you got into you know sort of the 1031 area and uh, you know how you have helped clients so far and we'll will get into the subject of uh, discussion today
2: sure first of all sir thank you for having me on this is sure. great i appreciate it and uh, yeah, when you talk and you went through my bio and you said experience, I think experience actually kind of means old at this point. You sure. know, I, <laughs> I still think of myself as a young man, but I, I've been uh, practicing law for since 1994. So it's been quite a while. Um, so yeah, one of the first, just how I got started in, in 1031 Exchanges, I was a young associate at a law firm. I'm based down Long Island, New York. And the partner I worked for said, Mike, we got this great project we want you to work on. And I said, great, what is it? He said, it's a 1031 exchange. And <laughs> I, I was green. I looked at him and I said, well, what's that? And he said, I don't know. It has something to do with taxes and real estate and go hit the books and figure it out. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So this was 1994. So when he said hit the books, he meant hit the books because we had computerized research, but this was kind of the you know the beginning of the-
1: Back in the days. Yep. Yeah
2: so i actually had to go to the court library i had to take out a tax treatise i dusted it off I flipped yep. it open to section 1031 and i read it and I, then i read it again and i read it a third time and i realized i was in trouble i didn't <laughs> I, I didn't understand it so what i ultimately discovered was i needed to find a good qualified intermediary to help myself and my client walk through the 1031 exchange, and that's exactly what we did. And that client was able to exchange a uh, a five-family building in in Jackson Heights in Queens, New York, mm-hmm. and he bought a building lot out in the Hamptons on the East End of Long Island, which was probably a pretty good trade for him. So I, you know, I handled a number of exchanges as an attorney for years for clients, and got involved in 2005 uh, running the East Coast operations for a national qualified intermediary. Uh, where I did that for a number of years. And I've been to a couple of other companies and then I joined Madison about two years ago to head up our national sales and marketing efforts.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Now uh, for layman terms, who like folks who may not have heard of, uh, you know, sort of the 1031 and a like uh, 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 kind exchange and things like that, that kind of the lingo gets thrown around. Uh, give us some, uh, so just a basic definition of what it is and, y- you know, like h- how can you maybe perhaps help clients and things like that?
2: Yeah. So the whole concept of a 1031 exchange, what we're trying to achieve is a we're trying to defer paying taxes when we sell. Real estate. So when you sell any type of appreciated asset, you will pay taxes on the capital gain, the profit from that sale. Sure. Now the rates, you know, vary. So you know the federal income tax rates are fifteen to twenty percent typically, is sometimes in the three point eight percent net investment income tax depending on your tax bracket. Um, if you have depreciation, the real estate portion, to the extent that you've depreciated the property, gets recaptured for twenty at twenty five percent. If you have done a cost seg study, which you and I were just talking about, it can be higher, sure. um, mm-hmm. because you reclassify as personal property and you pay ordinary income tax rates on that, mm-hmm. uh, which can be in the thirties of per, you know thirty percent you know area. And then you have state and local income taxes. So where I live in New York, we have a state income tax that's almost nine percent. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. California is over twelve percent, I believe. Wow. Um, city of New York charges a you know, marginal rate of three point six four eight percent. Right, so sure. you know mm-hmm. you're talking about taking one third or more of your profit off the table and sell property. Okay? Right. So, and so a ten, th- mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sorry. And a ten thirty one exchange allows you to defer paying those taxes as long as you reinvest in other property. Okay. And mm-hmm. The concept's based on the, the fact that if you had a property that I liked and I had a property that you liked, and they were the same value, and you and I traded deeds, well, that's Mm -hmm. a 1031 exchange, right? And and the recognition is that why should we then have to reach into our pockets to pay the taxes because there's no money changing hands here. And so, you know, this is something that's been in the tax code since the 1920s. The structure I just described doesn't happen that often. You know, it's very rare if parties' interests align. And so they created a third-party structure whereby you're going to do a swap with a qualified intermediary.
1: Interesting. And describe that word intermediary as to, you know, how that's important and why it exists, basically.
2: Yeah, so when I first heard the term qualified intermediary back in 1994, I thought, oh, this is great. I found somebody who knows what they're doing. They're qualified, right? Right. Uh, What I ultimately discovered, the company I worked with at that time in helping my client, they were very good. They were excellent. But I discovered that you do not have to have any special training to be a qualified intermediary. You know, um, there's no test that you take to be a qualified intermediary. There's no mm-hmm. uh, no uh, school that you go to, no major in college that you take to be a qualified intermediary. You know, mm-hmm. you don't get a good housekeeping sale of approval from the IRS saying you are qualified. What it means is you are not disqualified.
1: Okay? I because
2: see. I see. A disqualified person cannot be that person's qualified intermediary. So any agent of the taxpayer is disqualified. Their attorney, their accountant, their, their relatives, uh, any company they own a more than a 10% interest in. Those are all parties that cannot be. But anybody else technically could be their qualified intermediary.
1: I see. I see. So does uh, does uh, I guess the company that's a qualified intermediary, uh, do they need to have a like a licensed attorney uh, on um, on their uh, sort of uh, payroll? Is that uh, uh, what the technical requirement is?
2: Yeah, that's so. That's a great question. And so, you know, we are an industry, quite frankly, that, that handles billions of dollars of of, of uh, investments for our clients every year. We're holding money on behalf of our clients, and we are largely an unregulated industry. Okay, so after the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, a handful of states enacted regulations. They were fairly modest. I think that, that maybe five or six states basically governing where the money can be invested and bonding mm-hmm. requirements, things like that. But it's a very, very modest you know, regulation. So it does make sense <laughs> to do your homework because you do not have to be an attorney. Anybody can be a qualified intermediary as long as they're not disqualified uh, for that specific taxpayer. And so you want to do your homework. You want to know that the qualified intermediary has some expertise in this area. So Madison, uh, we have uh, three attorneys on staff. Okay, Mm -hmm. we have accountants, we have um, three certified exchange specialists on staff. That's a designation that's given by our trade group, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, where Mm -hmm. you take a proficiency test to show that you understand the regulations. And you actually have to be in the industry for three years before you take that test. You have to abide by Mm -hmm. a code of ethics. And we have three certified exchange specialists on staff. Um, And you want to know what they do with the money, quite frankly, because... You know, in many states, there's no regulation. So you want to know that, you know, they're not doing anything aggressive with the money. So we only put the money into escrow accounts, okay? Typically, we can set up a segregated escrow account that bears our name, Madison Exchange, Mm -hmm. but it has a sub-account, uh, with our client's name and tax ID number on it, so specifically identified to our client.
1: Sure, for benefit of sort of things. Right,
2: right exactly. And so you have that level, and then you want to make sure that, obviously, that's a, com- a, com- some, a company with some financial resources. Um, you know, I'm part of, you know, Madison 1031 is part of a larger group of companies called Madison Commercial Real Estate Services, which includes Madison Specs, which is our cost segregation company. Like the infamous Yona Weiss, who is uh, the cost seg king, who you, we were talking about earlier. Yes, is absolutely. Uh, he
1: was on the prior podcast as well. <laughs> yeah.
2: And Yona know, is fantastic, very, very knowledgeable on cost segregation studies. Um, we have Madison Title, which is one of the largest independently owned title insurance agents in the country. And we have uh, Madison 1031 and Real Pro Due Diligence, which uh, at least for Real Diligence, which does. Um, least abstracting a financial due diligence on real estate projects. So we I are see. a company of some resources. We're not going anywhere.
1: Right, right. That that, that kind of puts it into perspective, the global umbrella around uh, Madison, basically there, right there. And Now, uh, Michael, help us understand or maybe give us a use case. Uh, sometimes I like to say that, you know, those are like the best ways that we can uh, kind of go through and uh, learn about this subject and, you know, it just makes it real. Uh, give us a a uh, concrete use case of uh, you know any one of your clients, uh, how they may have used this, and that will kind of you know uh, you know help us a better understand this.
2: Yeah, sure. So I mean, our typical—it's not that uncommon a situation. Our kind of bread and butter is a client who is selling a piece of appreciated property they owned. Uh, let's say it's a multi-family that they've rented, owned and rented for ten years or so. <laughs> um, now. And this, of course, is pre-pandemic. You know, we're filming this in the midst of the pandemic. But pre-pandemic, the market was very hot, right? Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they were getting a premium for their property. And so um, maybe they wanted to diversify. So maybe they had a property that was worth $5 million, let's say. Um, you know, this is New York City property, this may not be, <laughs> be everywhere. So let's say they have $5 million multifamily property. Now they're in New York, cap, rights is, cap rates are somewhat compressed. New York is getting to be a little challenging. We have some things with rent control legislation that is a little challenging for landlords. And so they've decided now they want to diversify. Mm-hmm. So they want to sell and they want to go into other sectors. So they can sell this property in a 1031 exchange, take their $5 million and they can go buy several properties.
0: And maybe I they, just,
2: yeah. And so maybe they decide yes, they still want to have some exposure to the New York marketplace. So they're going to buy a two-family house in in uh, in um, in uh, Brooklyn Heights. Okay, actually, it's probably a bad example. Brooklyn Heights is way overpriced. But they're buying a two-family house in Brooklyn Heights, uh, you know, four million dollars, and sure, sure. they're going to take another million dollars, and they're going to buy a, uh, a Walgreens out in uh, Minnesota. Okay. I see. Um, mm-hmm. And they're going to, you know, they're going to buy something else. They're going to buy uh, on Amazon. Oh, and that's probably too expensive. But they're going to buy, let's say, a distribution facility in Texas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And then they're going to, maybe they have a little bit left over uh, and they're going to buy something that's kind of passive. All these things are somewhat passive, but they'll buy something called a Delaware Statutory Trust. Which is a, so. a type mm-hmm. of investment property they can buy in a ten thirty one exchange. that's managed by somebody else. So now they've taken their five million dollars. They've now bought a bunch of different properties which have different income streams, maybe in different sectors, so that mm-hmm. you know, if if um, you know uh, if if multifamily is hit, then they've got some industrial and, and distribution exposure. You know, and
1: yeah, that uh, that was something I was about to kind of ask you as well, Michael. Is that in your example, you're saying the uh, the person is going from multi-family to industrial to sort of logistics distribution of sorts and and all of that is allowed i mean when we say like kind exchange it isn't necessarily meant from let's say multi-family or industrial to industrial or multi-family to multi-family It, it can be anything within the real estate arena is that is that correct
2: correct you could you know you could sell a multi-family you could go buy a working farm right you could sell a farm and you could go buy a factory You can sell Mm -hmm. that factory, you can go buy an office building, you can sell an office building and you can go buy twenty single family residential rental properties. I see. see. All like kind has to be real estate to real estate. You know, so you cannot go take your uh, you know, your your six family house in Queens and you cannot turn around and then go buy a yacht right? That, that sure. doesn't, work. it has to be real estate for real estate. Only real estate may be exchanged in the 1031 exchange.
1: I see. And it has to be like the relinquishing property or the property that you're selling and the one that you're buying, it has always has to be a new purchase. It cannot be like any, like, let's say if you own something existing, you cannot like uh, uh, use that uh, sort of 1031 uh, funds to renovate and things like that, it has to be a new purchase. Is that correct, Michael? Correct.
2: You know, so you cannot fix up a property that you already own, nor can you pay down a mortgage. You know, that's another mm-hmm. common question. You know, I own this other property. That's a $500,000 mortgage. I want to apply the proceeds. That does not work. Unfortunately, it has mm-hmm. to be a new purchase. Um, there is something called an improvement exchange where on a new purchase, you might be able to use some of the proceeds to make improvements to that property. That's a complex structure though. Uh, But that's a possibility. But if you already own it, it's too late. You're not able to use it for repairs and renovations.
1: I see. I see. Now, help us understand some of the sort of the process-related questions. Like in terms of, you know, when can I get this in motion? Or let's see, if I'm thinking of selling and things like that, what sort of uh, process-wise or timing-wise, what are some of the details involved in this?
2: Yeah. So the the most important thing I could tell anybody listening today is that. Um, you need to set up the exchange before you close on any property. Okay. It's unfortunate that every now and then, I'd say maybe once a quarter or so, I'll get a phone call from somebody saying, you know, I want to do a 1031 exchange. I say, great. When's the closing? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, it we closed two weeks ago. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's not an exchange. Once you receive the money, Mm-hmm. It's too late. You're not receiving a property for a property, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not an exchange. And they'll say, no, 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 it's okay. Well, I didn't cash the check. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You received it, right? So if I you think. received it, it's too late. So you want to get us involved before you go to closing um, at the latest. We like to have a week to two weeks notice. I recommend that you call us as early as possible, possibly even before you think about selling the property uh, mm-hmm. Or as you're thinking about selling the property, because there may be issues that we can kind of uncover for you that you may not be aware of. Things like if mm-hmm. you're in a partnership and you want to divide up, you know, that's easier to do before you go to contract than after.
1: I see. Now, let me uh, maybe ask a bit more sort of a hairy or a nerdy question here, uh, Michael. Is that is there a law like when you're saying that yes, you closed on it and things like that, you received the check, right? But uh, legally. Uh, is it the requirement that uh, the funds have to be like, let's say if you're using a title company uh, and during the closing itself on the hard one and whatnot, does the title company has to kind of uh, put that in writing that yes, this is the, like for example, um, Madison 1031 is the qualified intermediary that where the funds are uh, going to be placed as an escrow agent. Is that the technicality behind uh, all of this that the funds have to be placed with the uh, intermediary. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
2: Yeah. So there's a safe Harbor that was created because see, like I said, you and I described it, the swap between you and I, so that doesn't happen. So oh, I should back mm-hmm. up a little bit. So what actually happens in the usual 1031 exchanges, they exchange with us as the qualified intermediary
1: mm-hmm. so
2: tax for tax purposes. They're going to give us their property. All right, mm-hmm. so give it to Madison 1031. We're then going to sell it to a third party. We're going to take the proceeds from that sale. And we're going to go buy a property from somebody else. And then we're going to give that property to our client in exchange for the one they gave us. Okay, I that's see. what mm-hmm. happens for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. But that would be a very messy transaction, right? We have two deeds on each side of the transaction. It would be very expensive because we'd have risk if we took title to the property, either property. And so it's enough that treasury regulations permit direct deeding, which means that the seller and buyer on each side will deed the property directly, or seller on each side deeds the property directly to the buyer. The only thing that needs to happen is the money needs to flow through us. So the mm-hmm. seller is going to pay us. Now that means, you know, typically what happens is the closing is you pay the title company, you know, the title company takes possession of all the proceeds and then they cut, you know, they pay their expenses and, you know, transfer taxes, if they're transfer taxes, brokers, sure, everything sure. else, and the net will come to us.
1: I see, I see. So, and, and all this is basically specified on HUD 1. Is that uh, what you're saying? Yeah, so
2: best practice really is that the HUD 1 or, you know, in a commercial, most, you know, commercial probably you're not going to have a HUD 1 or a, uh, you know, um, a CD. Um, you're going to have some other type of closing statement. They'll reflect similar to a HUD 1. Sure. Um, hmm. They'll reflect us and as the seller of the relinquished property and the buyer of the replacement property. So (laughs) it'll say, you know, Madison exchange is qualified intermediary for Joe blow. Okay. (laughs) Um, And that's the only document. So the deed, everything else is done as you usually would do it. But on that, it shows that for tax purposes, we are the seller. Okay. (laughs) Um, Our fee should be reflected there and the payment to us of the net proceeds should be reflected there as well
1: i see now in that uh, prior case when we said that joe has sold the property now seller joe is holding the check that came to the title uh, that came from title company he hasn't cashed it but his window of opportunity to pursue a 1031 exchange is gone is that kind of what you are getting at
2: Yeah. Once the benefits and burdens of ownership of the property transfer, if it Mm -hmm. has not been set up in advance, it's too late. So before Mm -hmm. you close, we have to be in the picture. The exchanger has to sign an exchange agreement with us whereby he's agreeing that the proceeds will come to us. He has to assign the contract to us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, The benefits of the contract. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that has to be done before he completes his closing. He can sign those documents at his closing, but you know, Three days later, it's too late.
1: I see. Now, now, uh, again, another, uh, sorry to kind of hone in here, Michael, but let's say if someone has made a honest mistake and... Um, you know is there anything that you can do to help them meaning can they still come into a 1031 or is it is that window uh, like completely extinguished
2: there is the possibility that they can rescind the entire transaction this is unlikely I've probably done Mm -hmm. this once Mm -hmm. you know so they'd have to do a total rescission which would require the cooperation of their buyer so essentially you know, hopefully the deed, you know, you're in a state that doesn't have automatic recording. New York, it takes a couple of days to record a deed, right? right. Mm-hmm. In Texas, the deed is recorded same day. It's almost impossible. So essentially title would have to go back to the seller. The money would have to go back to the buyer. If there's a payoff bank, that's not going to happen. Yeah,
1: you know, that's that's too hairy right there. Yeah. I think that's, you'd have to that's cancel unlike... the
2: contract. And the theory is that you'd have to cancel the contract and mm-hmm. start at the beginning. I've I done it maybe once. I've seen it actually done. It was an all cash transaction. There was no payoff bank. You know uh, we were in New York, so the deed wasn't recorded. We held everything up, and they went back and they started all over. But otherwise, you know what I typically do in that situation is I tell them they cannot do a ten thirty one exchange. Uh, maybe they want to look at something like a qualified opportunity zone, which is a little bit more generous in in how you handle the transaction.
1: Right, right. Now, what about the sort of the replacement property? How does that come into the picture? Like, does seller have to pre-identify these things or how, how, how does that work, Michael?
2: Yeah, so there are two important deadlines. So from the closing of the sale, the exchanger has 45 days to identify in writing their potential replacement property. So that would mm-hmm. typically mean they would send us a list of properties. We try to make it pretty easy. You close on Monday. On Tuesday, you get a letter from Assen Exchange saying, dear taxpayer, we have your money. And here's a form to fill out. Send it back to us by 45 days from now. Okay. Mm-hmm. That means they give us a list of properties. Typically, they can identify up to three potential properties regardless of the value, four or more, provided they do not exceed double the value of what they sold. Okay. Um, So they send us that list and then uh, they close on anytime after they close on their sale, they can close on their acquisition. They do have to close on something they've identified in those 45 days.
1: I see. Now, Michael, another question, which probably and you probably encounter this all the time is that I give you a list of three properties and day 20th or 25th comes around and I change my mind. Yeah. How does that work? Did, did I, did I mess, mess up the paperwork now or am I still able to come back in within that 45 period and say that, oh, instead of ABC, uh, I want to you know change two of these properties. How, how does that play into the-
2: paperwork? Yeah, so I typically recommend that they don't fill, the clients do not fill out their identification and send it in until closer to the 45th day. Unless you're mm-hmm. going to close on the property sooner, there's no reason to identify on day 20. Right, So keep mm-hmm. your options open, you know, have it ready to go day 43, you know, send it in, you know, if it's a holiday, send in day 40, you know, because sure. uh, mm-hmm. these are calendar days. So, you know, if your 45th day is, uh, this what is a Friday, uh, no, Saturday is the 4th of July. Right. So if your 45th day is the 4th of July, you got to send it in by the 4th of July.
1: I um, see just, yeah. I, and and also, Michael, uh, like, let's say you set three properties, right? But let's say if someone is doing a large transaction and let's say there is a, um, a you know, four or $5 million capital gain here, right? Yeah. And if they want to perhaps uh, go into like you know let's say smaller like a strip mall and a warehouse distribution center as you pointed out or perhaps an office building and things like that meaning you know more than two three uh, properties how does that work like uh, meaning are we still able to go into like let's say five or six properties yeah sure um so like only three, three is the minimum you're saying
2: well three three regardless of value okay and you and the minimum is is one right so mm-hmm you know you can identify up to 3 regardless of the value it's a little bit of a silly rule but if you exceed 3 the total value of everything you identify together cannot exceed double the sale price of your relinquished property okay mm-hmm. so if you sold for 5 million dollars and you identify 5 properties you cannot identify more than 10 million dollars of property Okay, but so it's really designed if you're going to buy a bunch of smaller properties. If mm-hmm. you go out and you you know you decide you're going to identify six properties and they're all going to be five million dollars each because you're just going to buy one, that mm-hmm. doesn't work. You would be limited to three in that case.
1: I see, I see. And, and another sort of uh, related twisted question, Michael, is that day forty-five passes and you haven't yet uh, because you know right now, as you know, the market is so hard yeah. that. Uh, you know deals come come in and sometimes you don't like them, which probably is the majority of the case but what if you are just not able to identify the deals and you're really having a tough time uh, is there any flexibility on that forty five uh, day window like are there any exclusions or anything uh, for that?
2: yeah, so you know we're so in we're so used to getting extensions and tax returns, right you get that extension till you know September sometimes October if you're you know um, and, and, and with COVID-19, we've had extensions, but typically the 1045, 10th, uh, 1045, 1031 deadlines are hard fast. You do not get an extension. So you mm-hmm. need to identify by 45 days. The other data I haven't gotten into yet is you need to close within 180 days of your closing. Those are hard fast deadlines. The only extensions mm-hmm. that have been granted are when, uh, the taxpayer or somebody involved in the transaction or the property is involved in a federally declared natural disaster. Okay. I see. And mm-hmm. then they've given extensions with COVID-19. They gave some weird extensions. Um, it's a whole different topic, but essentially mm-hmm. those, that extension's about to come up on July 15th. So if you're, if you had a deadline between April 1st and July 15th, your deadline was extended to July 15th in recognition of COVID. So it was a weird kind of extension. It didn't really match what they had done in the past. We think there may be a basis to say you could be entitled to an additional extension, but again, that's a little bit of aggressive. And we are asked, we have asked and are waiting hopefully for the IRS to give further guidance before July 15th, -hmm. but otherwise it's a hard, fast deadline.
1: I see. And then you're saying, once you identify, you have to close within 180 days and that 180 days, does that start from your prior closing date or is yes. that from the 45th day uh, of forward yeah so when, when does that 180 days clock start it starts from your closing date okay, okay so
2: after the 45th day you have another 135 days to close
1: i see i see and, and which which i assume i mean 135 days is fairly generous or, yeah. or 180 days like pretty much 6 months uh, for that matter
2: yeah yeah the 45 days is usually the issue the 180 day you know, deadline is not usually an issue, although with the pandemic, it has become one because it's been difficult to close <laughs> problems.
1: Right, 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 right. Now, what other things, uh, Michael, we should be aware of? Like, for example, um, you know, we hear uh, some uh, cases where you cannot uh, sort of 1031 directly into let's say a syndication of sorts right? right because syndication typically you know you're kind of combining forces and it's kind of a partnership and things like that but i have uh, kind of uh, i'm curious to know that how you can incorporate uh, 1031 into a uh, sort of a syndication framework as well
2: yeah so this is going to be way simplistic but it's the basic concept so sure. the, the issue you have is that The taxpayer that sells the relinquished property has to be the same taxpayer that buys the replacement property. They have to actually have ownership of the property. Mm -hmm. With the syndication deal, you're typically buying with other people in a limited liability company. So the buyer Mm -hmm. is the limited liability company, and that usually is taxed as a partnership. So the taxpayer, there is the partnership. The person sold their property as an individual. So they Mm -hmm. cannot sell as an individual and buy in a partnership. Okay. I see.
1: Now, yeah. another related question. What if, like, typically, I assume that, um, you know, these are a lot of investors who are doing the 1031 as well. What if, if let's say, uh, ABC Main Street LLC is the seller? And right. now here you're trying to come in into a syndication? How, how would that work? Are you saying that ABC Main Street um, LLC has to now kind of take some kind of an ownership or Uh, Give give us a sense of how does that. uh, Yes, so the typical
2: way, whether it's an entity that's sold or an individual, the way Mm -hmm. we typically see a syndicated type, because it's not a true syndication transaction setup, is that that 1031 investor would have to come in and buy an interest in the property as a tenant in common investor, often referred to as a tick.
1: I see. Okay, mm-hmm.
2: uh, and so that means it will be two or more owners of the property instead of the just the CDE LLC buying the property. It will be the ABC LLC that, which is the 1031 investor, and the CDE LLC, sure, you know, sure. being that... the, being the investors in the property. They will own it as tens in common. Mm-hmm. The issue you have in a true syndication deal is that, um, you know, typically we do a lot of stuff in syndicated entities that we cannot do in a tick structure. So, for instance, mm-hmm. the syndicator. Um, you know, maybe a person, maybe somebody comes in and she went out and she found the property, right? Mm -hmm. And then she lined up the investors. She brought all the investors in. So she's putting sweat equity into this project. And then she's going to manage the property and the other investors are going to be passive, right? So she's going to be the general partner. They're going to be the limited partners. She's going to run the show. She may be coming in with little or no equity or And but she's going to want to want for her sweat equity, she's going to want equity beyond whatever investment she makes. So she's putting 10% of the deal in, she may want at the end to have a 20% interest in the property. Hmm. Okay, those Mm -hmm. numbers I realize are kind of weird, true, Hmm. (laughs) right? So, but so in a tick transaction, you must basically, if you put a hundred dollars in to. You know, two hundred dollar property. You have to get a fifty percent interest. Your your I interest think. has to reflect your investment. <laughs> you have to be able to earn returns based on what your investment is. So, if you put in half the the pros, half the uh, the uh, investment, then you have to earn half the profit. Okay. Now, now uh,
1: Michael, uh, let me maybe you know perhaps try to clarify this. That uh, so, in a syndicated uh, uh, situation, you are saying that you have the actual entity, the LLC, that's basically purchasing the uh, like let's say a multifamily building here right and how do you bolt in uh, the tick uh, or the tenant in common structure is that part of the general partnership or, or is that part of the i should say the operating agreement of the llc no. or is that the direct deeded interest within the multifamily itself
2: yeah. It's a direct deeded interest. So you'll have your, your syndicated entity where you'll have all your non 1031 investors and you can do whatever you want with, with, sure. entities, mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. like you would set up your typical syndicated structure there. Sure. Your 1031 investor is going to come in with their own entity, right? And mm-hmm. would be, you know, let's say a 50% or whatever it is. Maybe they're coming in with, you know, 25% of the equity. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll have a 25% interest in the property. And then the two entities together will own the property and they will have a tenant in common agreement which will provide for proportionate sharing of, of, you know, expenses, proportionate receipts, you know, and and then you do that for a period of time. And then if you ever wanted to combine the two entities, you could probably do that a few years into the relationship and just make it one LLC. Um, But at least initially that 1031 investor needs to buy a property interest.
1: I see. So basically, so if I'm understanding this correctly, the syndicated entity and the 1031 uh, uh, entity or the person are kind of the te- uh, tenants in common p- right. purchasing that, uh, uh, like let's say the multi-family asset that we are discussing right. here. I see, got it, got it. Now, w- w- what are some of the complications in this? Because I mean, it sounds like uh, I mean, you know, like uh, it's it's a bit of an advanced topic, Michael. But yeah. uh, for our listeners, but for example, let's say you know a lot of times we'll have capital calls or. Um, you know, let's say the all the uh, proceeds are changing based on, you know, all different situations and things like that. So that whole structure that we are talking about here in the tenant in common that the syndicated um, or rather the 1031 uh, exchange party has to have a pro rata share uh, uh, into this. How does that work? Because are they getting diluted based on the capital calls and things like I mean, I'm just trying to think of those uh, sort of intricacies that may occur.
2: Yeah. So they won't necessarily be, they don't have to be diluted. They can have a capital call. So they actually, they should, you know, mm-hmm. so if, you know, there's additional capital required, they should be contributing. You know, Mm -hmm. along with the other entity, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the other entity will do their capital calls within the structure, however they want amongst the partners. Mm -hmm. But that 1031 investor, if they have the 25% interest, they're responsible for 25% of whatever additional capital is required.
1: I see. Provide Mm -hmm.
2: that in your tick agreement,
1: Mm -hmm. you
2: know, um, The bigger issue is the compensation for the syndicator, right? So you just want to handle that in your syndicated entity. The syndicator can still manage the property so they can earn Mm -hmm. a management fee. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, the other issue you have is that, you know, some of the consents have to be unanimous in a tech structure. Like to sell the property, you need unanimous consent.
1: That's That's what I was about to ask you that. What about, you know, sort of the voting rights and, you know, who gets to say, And things like that, because, uh, you know, typically, as we know that in the general partnership and and limited partnership, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly streamlined, but it sounds like, I mean, tenants in common is like a equal ownership structure of, for right. lack of a better word, how, how does those voting rights come into the play?
2: Yeah, so typically one way around that, because there it's not so much the voting rights, because there'll probably be a minority interest in the tick, but mm-hmm. there are those things that need to be unanimous under, there's some guidance that's provided, it's a kind of a long story. It's not a safe harbor, but there's a revenue procedure for anybody mm-hmm. who's bored at home. It's RevProc 2002-22, which kind of gives you a bunch of th- different things you should include in your tick structure. Mm-hmm. Um, And so you have some unanimous decisions that need to be made if you're going to sell the property, things like that. And so what you could do to kind of control that 1031 investor, you could make the syndicator the manager of that 1031 entity. They cannot be an owner, but they could be a manager. And so, therefore, they can exercise the voting rights, et cetera. So, that's a little bit aggressive. And that's not universally accepted amongst tax professionals, but many say that that, that, that could work to kind of give control of the syndicator over that entity
1: now <laughs> mm-hmm. now no, michael uh, just uh stepping back a bit like you know let's say a a family decides that yes it's great for us to you know defer and invest this money and keep on uh you know doing the 1031 and i know uh certain families who have uh sort of you know used 1031 th- yeah. uh, four or five times and they in a rapid succession they went from deal A to deal B to deal C and things like that. And they definitely, you know, avail that. But ultimately, I mean, if I were to maybe kind of step back and say this is that uh, you are at some point pretty much taking that conscious decision that this money is going to be deferred uh, you know sort of the taxes towards this are going to be deferred in perpetuity meaning that you can take five hundred thousand uh, out of your nest egg and keep on reinvesting it reinvesting it for the greater uh, good later on uh, and meaning that it's a pure deferment strategy it's not something that you can kind of withdraw and take a, uh, uh, you know, b- buy a boat or something that we were talking about, right? So is that kind of how it plays out uh, into this?
2: Yes. Yeah, so yes, you it is. And you're absolutely right. So this is a tax deferral vehicle, not a tax elimination vehicle. Right. Uh, so that's you're just kicking the can down the road. So the goal here or the ultimate play is uh, we call it swap until you drop. Right, So you you continue to do 1031 exchanges during the course of your lifetime, and then you drop dead, right? Hopefully after a good long life, you drop dead owning the property. Well, Mm -hmm. your estate under current tax law gets what's called a step up in cost basis, which basically Mm -hmm. makes the accumulated gain disappear. And your estate gets that property. If they sell it the next day, they will pay no capital gains taxes
1: i see okay. now uh, another related question into that michael comes up is that who's keeping track of all this uh, basis like uh, let's say if i'm going from property a to property b to property c uh, is there anything in the uh, sort of the trail of documents that's saying that okay When you started, your basis was, let's say, uh, you know, 500,000. But now, when you went to uh, the new property, you were at uh, 750K and things like that. How how does that work?
2: Yeah. So, you should have a good accountant, number one. And every time you do an exchange, you have to complete Form 8824, Mm -hmm. where you'll need to calculate the going forward basis of your replacement property. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, there's that record. Now, of mm-hmm. course, during your ownership, you're going to change your basis. You'll be making improvements to the property, which will increase your basis. You'll be depreciating it, which will be decreasing your basis. And that's all reflected on your tax return. And so your accountant should be tracking all that because mm-hmm. you're going to need it at the end of the day when you ultimately sell and cash out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's important. You want good record keeping, good, you know, it's this is not something you necessarily, necessarily want to do on TurboTax unless you're pretty proficient. <laughs> you know, you probably want a good account. I happen to work with TurboTax myself for my own return, but I'm not doing 1031 exchanges.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hear you there. Uh, now, uh, another uh, question in, into this, Michael, comes up, is that we are using, like, let's say, uh, you know, loan or debt. Is already involved into all of this. How does that play into it? Is it something that, let's say, if you're selling a property for you know 500k, your debt was uh, 400k, uh, and sorts, um, so your uh, basis is now uh, 100k. Is that as simplistic as that, or what are some of the nuances? Yeah, uh, so
2: that's not how it works at all, actually. So okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> Scratch that idea.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so the way. It works- so and And you're, you're close, but essentially your debt has nothing to do with your, your capital gain. You know, and that's, it is a, people sometimes get confused. I've actually had accountants. I have, I've done phone calls with accountants and they've made that mistake, which is kind of scary. You know, essentially if you think about it, because if that was the case, all you would need to do to eliminate your capital gain is get a hundred percent financing, right? And your capital gain would disappear if somebody would give it to you. Um, so your capital gain is calculated by taking your sales. Basically, you have to figure out what your cost basis is. Mm-hmm. Your cost basis is whatever you paid for the property, mm-hmm. plus the cost of any improvements, mm-hmm. less any depreciation you've taken during your ownership of the property. That gives you your cost basis. So if you, bought it, for, you bought it for $100,000, you made $50,000 of improvements, right? But you depreciated by $25,000, your cost basis is $125,000.
1: I okay. see. Mm-hmm.
2: If you sell that property for two hundred thousand, your gain is two hundred thousand less one twenty five. It's seventy five thousand dollars.
1: I see. I see. Yeah. So pretty much the net profit is what you're going after, and right. the debt debt probably doesn't play into uh, in, into all of that basically. Correct.
2: You know, you're paying off your debt, which means there's less cash available to buy a property. But it's also important to note that you're not just reinvesting your profit here, you also have to reinvest your basis. So right. if you sell that property for $200,000, you have to buy a property for $200,000 or more, less closing costs, if you want to fully defer your gain. You mm-hmm. you go down in value, uh, but you'll just pay tax on whatever that difference is. Right, okay? right. And the general rule of thumb is to fully defer your gain, you want to buy property that's equal or greater in value to what you sold, and you want to spend all of your proceeds from the sale, which means that you'll probably have to take on the same or greater debt than you had on the other property.
1: Right, right, and, and to put it in that uh, into context, uh, taking that prior example, Michael is that you bought a property for hundred. Let's say you had an eighty thousand dollar loan, and your um, uh, sort of your equity was twenty thousand. You made some improvements, and you had you uh, for twenty five thousand. Now you are at one twenty five, but you sold it for two hundred. Right. So your net gain is seventy five. But what about the sort of the i mean again this is getting a little detailed here but uh, you invested let's say 20000 uh, as your equity then you invested 25000 as your sweat equity or you know improvements and all that right. how how does that play into it like uh, i mean you know it seems that 75 is a uh, sort of a net number uh, that you see but how do you capture that 20% that you Contributed initially, and then also the twenty-five thousand that you made into capital improvements.
2: Yeah, that's going to be your basis for your new property. So if you go and buy something for two hundred, you're still going to have that same basis, right? Now, if you went from two hundred to three hundred, you know, if you sold for two hundred, went to three hundred, now you have that basis plus another hundred thousand dollars because you've gone up in value.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, that's how it works. You don't get to pull it out though, because the way it's viewed, any money you take out, let's say you went from 200 to 180, at $20,000, you'd say like, well, I paid $20,000 for the property. That's, I'm just taking my, my cash out. I'm hmm. taking my investment out. That should be tax-free. That's not the way it's looked at. It's looked at your $20,000 always moves forward first. And then, and then anything you take out is viewed as part of the profit. The way I describe it, a good way to look at this is you sell a property, you get two bags of money. Right, Mm -hmm. one bag is your cost basis. That's what you invested in the property, and the other bag is your profit. Okay, Mm -hmm. when you go buy the new property, the first bag of money that gets moved is your cost basis. Right, Mm -hmm. then you move your profit bag. If anything's left, it had it's from your profit bag, and you pay taxes on it.
1: I see. I see. Got it. What uh, now, uh, we are just about uh, coming on our time uh, here, Michael. I appreciate uh, all the details uh, that you have shared. Um, What are some of the restrictions or any limitations or prohibited transactions and things like that into all of this?
2: Yeah, so you do not want to do a 1031 exchange on a flip. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the property, the way it's described in in section 1031 is it only applies to property that's held for, quote, productive use in a trade or business or for investment. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, and 1031 also specifically excludes property held for resale. Okay. So if you were buying something,
1: fixing it up. Are you getting at like seasoning requirements? Uh, yes. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
2: I, I am, it's it's seasoning, but it's also use, right? So, right. Mm-hmm. you know, the, the it, we talk about seasoning because that's evident on the face of your tax return. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Excuse me, one second. I apologize. I had my ringer up. Um, so, you know, so you look at it, and, um, and the, uh, you're basically, the holding period is most evident on your tax return, but the mm-hmm. property has to be held for investment rather than resale. Okay. I see.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, meaning that typically you want to apply it to a rental property sure, so if, sure. or, you know, a property that you're operating a your business out of. If you're mm-hmm. just buying it on, you know, in January, spending six months fixing it up, and then flipping it to somebody else, that's not what 1031 is designed for.
1: I see, okay. I see.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, typically, we look at a holding period of you know two years or more conservatively, maybe as little as a year if you've rented it solidly for a year before you do a 1031.
1: I see, I see. Any any others, uh, Michael? Um,
2: let's see, what else? Uh, you cannot buy a REIT in a 1031 exchange. Sometimes we get asked that you could buy something called a Delaware Statutory Trust, which kind of looks a little bit like a REIT. But a REIT is a stock transaction. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a security, and so you cannot buy it in a 1031 exchange. Sure, um, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, timeshares, right? So people are like, oh, I'm going to go buy a timeshare. Timeshares, uh, there are some that are a deeded interest in property, um, mm-hmm. but by and large, they're not, and you don't get an actual deed, and so it's not doesn't qualify. Also, most timeshares, you're not going to have held for investment; they're for personal enjoyment. Okay, right, right, right. Um, which brings us to vacation homes. Vacation homes are another thing. If you have a vacation home that you're looking to do a 1031 exchange on, it has to be something that's been rented. And hmm. there's a safe harbor that says that in the two years prior to the sale, in each year, the property should have been rented at least 14 days to a non family member. Okay, and used no more than 14 days or 10% of the time that's rented. Okay, so if you're just there, you know, using it and water skiing on the lake and, you know, And never renting it, don't do not do a ten thirty one exchange on it.
1: Got it, got it. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate all your insights. Uh, Michael, it is I mean this sure is a loaded subject, and as you said, definitely a qualified uh, intermediary like your form and your expertise uh, are definitely needed in all of this, setting it up right and getting it right. So I appreciate all your information today. Uh, kindly share with our listeners, Michael, how uh, you know they can connect with you and learn more about your company.
2: Yeah, sure. So you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. I do post articles and I'm there so you can look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, best way to reach me typically is email. I check my email religiously. It's mbrady, like the bunch, B-R-A-D-Y, mm-hmm. at madison1031.com. That's also our website, uh, madison1031.com. We have a bunch of information there, including the Madison 1031 Zone blog where I post articles. Oh, yeah, some new information coming out as well on there. So, yeah, check that out. And, uh, you know, we also have a newsletter going out if you want to enroll and be part of our newsletter.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for all your insights and for listeners and viewers of the podcast. Thank you for listening to it to, uh, on all its entirety. If you are interested in working with us, uh, you know, we definitely have lots of uh, uh, deals on a monthly basis. Uh, it seems these days, and we also are hosting experts like Michael all the time on the podcast. So it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Michael, for coming on.
2: Yes. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to premium Cash Flow real estate investing podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.